If you turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, that's on page 130. If you have the Bible in front of you in the pew right there, it should be a hard back black Bible in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible, you can take that with you, and, and this is our gift to you. Um, Revelation chapter 5, page 1030, 1030. So I'm thankful for the opportunity to, to be able to preach God's word to you this morning after uh, we survived the hurricane last week. Um, so it just gave me an extra week to refine the sermon. So after the sermon's over and you're like, that was what an extra week does for you, um, just keep that to yourself. So. But this morning we'll be taking a journey. We'll be taking a journey along with the Apostle John to the throne room of heaven to watch one of the most important scenes of redemptive history take place before our eyes. And so I'm going to ask you to do something maybe a little out of your comfort zone this morning, especially for a lot of us men, but I'm going to ask you to use your imagination. Use your imagination a little more than normal today. And the reason why is because what we will be study, studying isn't a didactic doctrinal text like we've been looking at in Galatians. This is an apocalyptic vision. So this is full of imagery and symbolism that is meant to call up images in our minds. And so it forces us to think more imaginatively. Now, I'm not telling you to make things up as you go along, but allow the scripture to, to activate in your mind to see the reality that John is describing for us. And with that said, there are two types of Christians, two types of Christians those whom the book of Revelation is their least favorite and least read book of the Bible, and those whom the book of Revelation is their most favorite and most read book. We all know those people, right? There's two extremes with this book. Why is that? That is because, most likely, because the book of Revelation is one of the most difficult books to understand on its face. It's controversial. That's why some people like it. That's why some people don't like it. And it's symbolic content like 12-headed dragons and sea monsters and unicorns and a tatted-up Jesus becomes the source of debate and speculation. So some of us avoid it and some of us spend our whole lives in it. And because of this imagery in the book of Revelation, the word apocalypse has taken on a new meaning in our day. It has its own meaning in our day. When we hear the word apocalypse, what do we think of? We think of the end of the world. We think of wars, of zombies. We think of hurricanes and Arnold Schwarzenegger. But in the first century, when this book was written, the word's actual meaning was disclosure or revelation. It comes from the Greek word Apocalypsis, which we find in the very first verse of Revelation. The first verse of Revelation says, The Revelation, this is the title, The Revelation of Jesus Christ, the Apocalypsis of Jesus Christ. And this is important because it reminds us that God isn't concealing anything from us in the book of Revelation. Rather, it's the opposite. He is revealing something to us in this book. And so the question is, what is he revealing? The answer is found there in that 
Same sentence, the title of the book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. The book is revealing to us who Jesus is. And this is the reason why we need to hear what God has to say to us in this book. Because its purpose is to tell us, or rather show us, who Jesus is. One pastor has said that this book is not a book of puzzles, but a catalog of paintings depicting the glory of our Lord and Savior. So is that how you see the book of Revelation? As a catalog of paintings. What God is showing us in this book is not a puzzle to figure out, but a person to adore. So the Lord is inviting us this morning to behold the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. And so that is our goal. And that is what we're going to do this morning. We'll be focusing our attention in on Revelation chapter 5, particularly the verses uh, 9 and 10. And so if you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you really must understand Revelation chapter 5. And the reason is because if you think of the, the book of Revelation like a movie, and there's been movies made about the book of Revelation, but if you think of the book of Revelation like a movie, chapter four is that scene at the beginning where you meet all the main characters. And chapter four, we meet him who is seated on the throne, this transcendent being who is beyond description. We meet the four living creatures who are around the throne and never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. We also meet the 24 elders who most likely represent the church in all ages, the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, making the 24 elders. And we see all of these creatures on their faces, worshiping him who is seating on the throne. That's chapter four. And if chapter four is this introductory scene in the movie, chapter five is where the star comes into the scene. And then there's that twist in the action that sets the plot into motion. We meet the main character and everything that happens from this scene, everything that happens after that flows from this scene. And so it's crucial. You can't miss this scene in the movie. It's the linchpin of the whole book. And as we will see, it's the linchpin of all of history. So let's dig in. Revelation chapter 5. So I do encourage you to open your Bible and have it before you uh, as we're going to be walking through it. We're not going to be reading it in one large chunk. But chapter 5 starts with the camera zooming in. And we see in the right hand of God a scroll. And this is no ordinary scroll. The fact that it is in the right hand symbolizes that it comes with the full power and authority of the eternal God. And it is written within and on the back, meaning it was completely full. Normally, scrolls would have only been written on on one side, on the inside, and was rolled up, the outside being blank. But this scroll had writing on both sides. So I imagine the margins filled, front and back. It's completely full. And it was sealed with seven seals. Seven being the number of completion and perfection. 
this scroll was completely and perfectly closed. Again, a normal scroll in the ancient world would have been sealed with a single wax seal. And only very important documents were sealed with two seals. But this document was sealed with seven seals. That's because this scroll represents the eternal will and decree of God. It's the most important of documents. It's his plan of goodness and righteousness and justice. And it was completely full, not lacking in anything. Yet there's only one problem. It's sealed. It's sealed with seven seals and it's in the right hand of the unapproachable God. And in light of this dilemma, a mighty angel issues a challenge that reverberates throughout heaven and throughout the pages of the book of Revelation. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And a great search begins in every corner of the universe and no one was found worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. What a hopeless situation. God's eternal plan of goodness and righteousness and justice sealed shut. See, John had been exiled to the island of Patmos. He had been tortured for the name of Jesus. He had suffered great injustice. And when he sees that no one is able to open God's plan of salvation, he weeps loudly. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you've suffered greatly or you've been the victim of great injustice. Maybe you've been abused or slandered or you've been the victim of systematic and personal racism. And way down deep, you long, you long for justice. You long for salvation from the shame that you feel. And you feel as if the goodness and righteousness and justice of God is sealed shut with seven seals and stored away in unapproachable light. And when you ask who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals, the answer you receive is no one. And all you can do is weep. This message is for you this morning. Hear what the Lord has to say to you right now. And we all need to hear what comes next. Scripture says, and one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. So there is someone to open the scroll. And at this point, I imagine John looking around all over heaven going, where is he? Where is this lion? I've heard about him my whole life and he's the one that can open the scroll? Where is he? You see, the lion of Judah and the root of David had been prophesied about for centuries and centuries before. 
About the Lion of Judah, we read in Genesis 49, 9 through 10. Judah is a lion's cub. From my prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. You see, this lion of Judah was to be a conquering ruler. The nations would obey and worship him. So where is he? You think you have a prime seat in heaven. Where is he? Also, the root of David is prophesied in Isaiah eleven ten. It says, in that day, the root of Jesse, who is David's father, in that day, the root of De- Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. So this root of David would be one who would rule the nations in glorious rest. Yet where is he? And this is where the plot shifts. This is that pivotal moment because there in the crowd is a little lamb standing as though it had been slain. This little lamb, literally lambkin in the Greek, which is a very young, small lamb, which is also used as a term of endearment, a tender term. This little lamb was alive, yet it had the marks of sacrifice on its neck. It had seven horns representing the fullness of power and seven eyes representing the fullness of knowledge and the Holy Spirit. So this little lamb was a living paradox. He was slain, yet he lives. He was humbly gathered with the creatures, though he possesses the attributes of God. And later in the book of Revelation, we'll see that the lamb is also the shepherd. So the lamb was a living paradox. And in verse seven, I imagine everyone in heaven watching in silence as this little lamb approaches the unapproachable one upon the throne. To this point, no man or creature dared approach the one upon the throne without covering their faces and bowing before him. And this little lamb walks boldly up to him, takes the scroll from his hand. And when he took the scroll from the right hand of God, all of heaven fell on their faces in worship of the lamb. I wonder if you realize what just happened. Do you see the magnitude of what just happened? Here we see the lamb receiving worship in heaven. So what that means is not only is this little lamb, the lion of Judah and the root of David, but this little lamb is God himself. For none would receive worship before the very throne of God except for God himself. And so here we see the wisdom of God and the incarnation of Jesus Christ where the lamb receives worship in heaven. And from this point forward, the rest of the chapter are songs of praise and worship to the lamb. And so what I want us to do is to focus in on the first song, verses nine through 10. And this song is very instructive as all good hymns should be. 
This song is going to teach us who the lamb is, his purpose, and our purpose as the church in the world. So let's read starting in verse nine. And they sing a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And they sing a new song. There have been other songs so far in Revelation. In chapter four, we have the song of the four living creatures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Then we have the song from the 24 elders. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. So both songs are directed at him who sits on the throne and they acknowledge his worthiness as creator. But in chapter five, we have a new song. If you spend any time in the Psalms, you recognize this terminology, sing a new song. We, we read that this morning for our call to worship. But in chapter five, we have the ultimate new song and there's a new recipient and a new reason to worship. Our God, the Lamb, is a redeemer. And now we know without a doubt that this little lamb is Jesus of Nazareth. For no other man has ever died with the intention of ransoming people for God. And that is exactly what the lamb has done. And this work of reconciliation is what makes him worthy to open the scroll. So do you remember the question, who is worthy to open the scroll? And the answer was no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth. So what makes the lamb worthy? It's his work, his work of reconciliation. Check this out. It says, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. See, for you were slain is the grounding statement for worthy are you. Therefore, the cross of Jesus Christ stands at the center point of the plan and will of God. For without the opening of the scroll, God's plan for goodness and righteousness and justice on the earth would remain inactive and unrealized and ultimately pointless. See, in order for God's plan of goodness and justice and righteousness to be enacted, there had to be satisfaction for the non-goodness and the injustice and the unrighteousness in the world. The offspring of Adam, that's us, owed an insurmountable debt to the glory of God to which a payment must be made. And this payment was made with the blood of Jesus Christ. It says, and by your blood, you ransomed, agarazo, purchased, redeemed. You ransomed people for God. Notice here that the blood of Jesus is effective. It didn't make a people for God a hypothetical possibility. No, it purchased them. The payment was made by the lion lamb with seven horns of power. 
This was a powerful work of God, placing Satan underfoot and freeing God's people from his bondage and dominion. You ransom people for God by your blood. Colossians 2, 13 through 15 says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and break its seals. Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, has disarmed the rulers and authority and has established the kingdom to invade their land. You see, in verse 10, you have made them a kingdom. So who are the members of this kingdom and what is their purpose? The members of this kingdom are those who have been ransomed for God. And this is the church. The church is the kingdom spoken of here. And the members of this kingdom come from every tribe and language and people and nation. So this text gives a, a fatal blow to any sort of white supremacy or any other ideology that would elevate one ethnicity over another. If you are a Christian who wants to segregate the body of Christ by color and you're happy with black churches and white churches, you should probably reevaluate the Christ that you claim to follow. For he died to bring all the nations, ethnos, where we get our word ethnicities. He died to bring all the ethnicities into one kingdom. That was his purpose. And when you divide the body of Christ due to your prejudices and preferences, you directly attack the purposes of God. And you can trust that he will deal with you on the day of judgment. You see, by reconciling us to himself, he by necessity has reconciled us to one another. And this shows the power of the gospel because when people who naturally should hate one another live together in harmony and love and community in the church, the world will take notice. What do you think was going on in Galatians when the Jews and Gentiles were having their little scuffle and Paul comes along and says, hey, you're out of step with the gospel because there's one Christ, there's one body. He has brought us into one kingdom. And guys, this is incredible, an incredible opportunity that we have in our generation our cultural moment has given us the opportunity to display the wisdom and power of God in the gospel. It's right here before us. The government and the media, they want us divided. So let's go all out and let's stand in radical unity. 
as one body in Jesus Christ for the glory of God in our generation. We can do this. God has given us all that we need. Christ has torn down all that could stop us because in the gospel, in the design of the work of God, Christ is turning kingdoms, plural, into a kingdom, singular. But you might say, well, isn't this kingdom something that is in the the future? Something that's coming in the future that we're looking forward to and, and longing for, but maybe not seeing played out right now. And that is a common assumption. But here's how I see it, and I'll show you with the scriptures. The kingdom of Jesus Christ began with his life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Though it isn't fully consummated at this point, it has been inaugurated and is a very real reality at this very moment. Every living creature is under the lordship of Jesus Christ, catch this, whether they like it or not. That is the reality of our day. So when Jesus was in his earthly ministry, he was casting out demons and the Pharisees come along and says, hey, he's using the power of Satan to cast out Satan. And and Jesus says, if it's by the spirit of God that I do this work, which obviously it was, he says, then the kingdom has come upon you. So even in Jesus' day, he considered his kingdom and his dominion, his lordship, a very real reality. And his death and resurrection only amped that up. And like I said, we are waiting for the full consummation where he destroys the final enemy, which is death. So here's some scriptural support. Revelation chapter one, verse four through six. I encourage you to flip over and look at this. It's just a couple pages over to your left. This is the same author, the same book. So we want to know what John, the apostle John means by the word kingdom. And when he says it is. Revelation chapter one, verse four through six. So this is the greeting. So this is important to know is that the apocalyptic vision hasn't really began yet. So it's not super cryptic or anything like this. This is just plain language. But this is what he says. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. I love that. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Doesn't that sound a lot like Revelation chapter five? And what we see here in verse six, John speaks of he made us a kingdom as in the the past tense. And this book was written in the first century. And he speaks of Jesus as the present tense ruler of kings on earth. And then if you jump down to verse nine, John includes himself as a partner in the tribulation and the kingdom with patient endurance that is in Christ Jesus. So he's considering himself a member and partner in this kingdom. So if John, who wrote this letter, and he died around the year 100, if he considered this kingdom a present reality, I think those of us living today can as well. So the question is, what's the purpose of this kingdom? 
If he's made us a kingdom, what are we to do? In short, reign on the earth. Let's read verse 10 again of chapter five. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And we need to take this verse seriously. Listen, I am super thankful to be part of a local church who takes seriously the calls to suffering in scripture. I am thankful to be part of a local church who consistently condemns the prosperity gospel as the damnable heresy that it is. And I am thankful to be part of a local church who values genuine conversion and discipleship over emotionally driven decisionism and large membership numbers. So listen closely to what I'm about to say. I think that often in an effort to faithfully follow a theology of the cross, which we wholeheartedly love, a theology of the cross, we can be tempted to fall into a sort of defeatism. And what I mean by that is that we expect to lose. We expect to be slaves in Egypt rather than a kingdom of priests conquering Canaan. So it has been my prayer for weeks that the Lord would use this sermon from his word and by his spirit to give his people courage and resolve and backbones of steel in light of the fact, not that they're anything special, but in light of the fact that the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can take the scroll and break its seals and bring goodness and righteousness and justice to the world through his people, a kingdom of priests who will reign on the earth. So church, you don't have to wait until heaven to reign. For the scripture says they shall reign on the earth. So what does reigning look like then? Should we all sit on gilded thrones with the largest hairdos possible? And should we fly around in our private jets? And do we walk around town with a sense of entitlement and look down our noses at those unbelievers as just those Gentiles, those sinners? Is that what reigning looks like? Do we step on people? No. It looks like William Wilberforce. William Wilberforce was an English politician who so believed the gospel and the conquering of the lion lamb that he labored for over 20 years to put an end to the English slave trade in the early 1800s. And his campaign rhetoric wasn't arguments from pragmatism or nationalism or incrementalism. His campaign rhetoric was thoroughly shaped by a biblical worldview and was laced with calls to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. When's the last time we've heard a politician call a nation to repentance? He exhorted the church in his day with things like this. He said, let true Christians then with becoming earnestness strive in all things to recommend their profession and to put to silence the vain scoffs of ignorant objectors. Let them boldly assert the cause of Christ in an age when so many who bear the name of Christians are ashamed of him. 
man, do we need William Wilberforce's today? You see, men like Wilberforce believed and believe that Jesus Christ is the king of nations and therefore their nations are accountable to him. They see since it is God's purpose to bring goodness and righteousness and justice to the world that they should labor towards that end as well. Wilberforce could have said, you know, it's a lost cause. The world will be messed up until Jesus returns. And you know what would have happened? More than likely, the injustice of slavery would have continued in England for who knows how long. But Wilberforce said, behold, the Lion of Judah has conquered. And the Lamb was slain, purchasing people for God and establishing a kingdom of priests who would reign forever on the earth. And he fought for justice, for the glory of God with the power of the gospel. Reigning looks like Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Latimer. These men were members of the Protestant Reformation in England and were martyred in 1555, October 16th, under the orders of Queen Mary, who we now know as Bloody Mary. They were sentenced to be burned at the stake for denying and preaching against the Roman Catholic doctrine of the mass and not submitting to to the authority of the Pope. You see, when their life was on the line, they held their confidence in the perfect work of Christ, that he didn't need to be sacrificed over and over and over again, that it was a once time sacrifice that was a perfect sacrifice. And when they threatened them with death, they said, bring it on. And as the kindling was being lit around their feet, Ridley was in torment because he wouldn't burn. His legs were burning, but his body wouldn't burn and he was suffering. And this is how Latimer encouraged his brother. He said, be of good comfort, Mr. Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust never shall be put out. Can you imagine that? They're literally lighting them on fire. And he says, we are lighting a candle by God's grace across England that'll never be put out. And if you're sitting here this morning, you come from this man and this tradition, this Protestant tradition became the Puritan movement. The Puritans, our Southern Baptist heritage, are offshoots of the English Puritans. We are in this room more than likely because of these men's sacrifice. That's reigning. That's not loving your life. That is saying Mary and the Pope think they're winning, but Christ is crushing them beneath his feet through us. For Paul says in Romans 16, verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And 1 Corinthians 15 says of Christ that he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Reigning looks like lives of humble holiness that trust in the promises of God over the appearances of the world. Reigning looks like offering your entire self to God as a living sacrifice and preaching the whole gospel to the world in which we live. Reigning 
is purifying the church and penetrating the culture and taking that seriously. So church, are we going to let Planned Parenthood reign or are we going to reign? Francis Schaeffer famously said that every abortion clinic should have a sign in front of it saying, open by permission of the church. Are we going to let cultural supremacists reign? Or are we going to reign? For all are made in the image of God. Are we going to let secular humanists reign? Or are we going to reign? For humanity cannot flourish apart from obedience to God's design. And you see, all of these are just manifestations of one universal human problem. And that's a sinful rebellion against God. And all of us were once members of this rebellion, the enemy kingdom, yet we were ransomed. We were purchased for God. And we were brought into a kingdom where goodness and righteousness and justice reigns. And he has called us to fight for this kingdom. See, in the old covenant, a kingdom of priests, Israel, was called to invade the promised land, Canaan, with a sword to set it apart as holy and prepare it to be a dwelling place for God, the temple. In the new covenant, a kingdom of priests, the church, has been called to invade the promised land, the world, with the gospel not a sword, to set it apart as holy and to prepare it to be a dwelling place for God. Jesus Christ, the lion lamb, has given us his orders. Matthew 28, 18 through 20, one of the most well-known texts for us. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Check this out. Verse 10, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Does that not sound like does that not sound like Genesis 49, 10, where it says that the Lion of Judah will receive the obedience of the nations? How does that happen? How do the nations come to the Lion of Judah and submit to him and worship him and obey him? Because the Lion became human, ransomed those people. He's purchased them. They're waiting on him. And he has sent us, his kingdom of priests, to invade. Go get my people and teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And all authority is behind that command. There is no authority that can stop that command. We can light a candle that by God's grace will never be put out. We can do that. He's given us all we need to do it. We're indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And in Revelation chapter 21, 
John jumps forward in time to give us a glimpse of when this is all complete. Revelation 21, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light and its lamp is the lamb. And by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring it, they will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. So there's no more of this striving over who's the biggest and baddest, who has the most glory as the nations. It will all be submitted to the one who has all authority and all power. And we will so benefit from that. So benefit for that. And this is our future. It will come to pass for it is written in the scroll. Just as sure as you're hearing my voice right now, this will happen. And this is your future church. So if you knew you were going to win the lottery tomorrow, it would change how you live today. And by no merit of our own, and only because of the glorious grace of God and the work of the lamb who was slain, we've got more, far more than the lottery ahead of us. We have the inheritance of the son of God. You know what that means? Everything. Every lottery that's ever been, every ounce of gold in this earth, the very fellowship with God and, and, and a partaking of the divine spirits, knowing what it's like to have access to the Father unhampered by sin. That's our future. I'll take that any day. Take that any day. So at this time, I'll ask the band to go ahead and come up and get ready to sing. I just want to close with this question. Are you living in light of the Lordship of Jesus Christ? In light of the conquering of the Lion of Judah? Because in reality, there are only two positions in the world. That's reigning as a kingdom of priests to God or under his feet. There's no middle ground. And if you are still at enmity with God this morning, you are fighting a losing battle. And I urge you to repent and to believe the gospel for his favorite way to conquer his enemies is by making them his friends. And even better than that, his children. You see that blood that ransomed people for God is sufficient to pay your debt as well. And all he asks of you is to receive it with the empty hands of faith and to join in with the heavenly song. Worthy are you,
to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So let's do this. Let's fight. Give it all we've got and we'll keel over and wake up in heaven. And after they finished their songs, the whole host of heaven fell down and worshiped. So let us do the same. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see what you have placed in front of us. The call to reign humbly as a kingdom of priests. Lord, we just pray that you would give us boldness. God, we see in the pages of scripture where the church is constantly praying for boldness. That's because we are frail and fickle and we need it. God, I just pray that you would use your word this morning to encourage us and give us that confidence and boldness that we so need. Before our reward is to see Christ have his reward. (laughs) That is what we want, Lord. We want to see Christ have his reward in the fullness. So we pray that you would bring this. May your kingdom come. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.